how are you? We don't, you know, we we're, we're just recording everything, so you know. I'm I'm good. I, I'm good. I'm 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 actually good. Well, thank you for making the time. You just tell me when you're running out of steam, or you think the conversation is no longer interesting, and we can stop. Uh, because... Now. <laughs> <laughs> This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. We've started this new pod podcast. Um, the name of the podcast is Disrupting Innovation. The whole idea behind it is we're trying to understand why it takes so long to go from bench to bedside. We're trying to understand why companies fail. We're trying to understand why health systems fail to give people the care that they need. We try to understand why government agencies are either not funding the right sort of research or not choosing to strategically target research that will be rapidly translated and have conversations with smart people like yourself and try and understand you know what's going on what what the problem is so i suppose the the way we could start is do you want to tell us who you are and what you do Yes. Um, so my name is John Krakauer. Um, I'm a professor of neurology, neuroscience, and physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Um, I am also uh, an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. And I also have a position um, in neuroscience at the Champlain-Mohr Center for the Unknown in Lisbon. Um, my interests are quite diverse. I would say that you know, clinically, I've been a stroke neurologist for longer than I care to admit. Scientifically, um, I've always been very interested in computational and experimental motor control um, studies in humans. I've also been very interested in recovery after injury to the nervous system, um, also mainly in humans, but I've also um, doing work in, in, in mice and monkeys. I'd like to believe that those two areas are connected in so much that I believe that one can come up with training protocols uh, based on neuroscientific principles that would be beneficial to repairing the nervous system. I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, there there's more, but you wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> appear to be full of yourself or, you know, brag or anything like that because God, God forbid. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for you. Um, in certain circles, I'm considered to be somewhat innovative. What I've always sort of having watched your career what i've i've always sort of found to be the case is if i have a novel idea and i search your name and the novel idea you've probably published on it five or seven <laughs> years ago uh has kind of been my experience my very honest experience of uh watching your career and watching your work so i get very excited always to have these conversations with you because i feel like we're on the, the same wavelength even if you're you know running running a, a few steps ahead and i think that you're probably uniquely positioned in the field if i could be slightly reductionist and talk about health technology from the standpoint of neurological recovery uh because i know that your contributions to human performance are pretty spectacular but if we if we just talk about people who are trying to recover from stroke and we we to or some sort of neurological injury and we talk about the contributions that you've made you, you see a lot. You see a lot of the research. You see a lot of the technology emerging. What are our fundamental issues in coming up with new ideas? Let's let's start there. Yeah, maybe just before we get to that, I'll, I'll, I'll just give a sort of a little anecdote that for me, I think it's kind of personal watershed or something that comes back to me, uh, haunts me and inspires me in equal measure. Uh, you know, I was the uh, stroke attending at Hopkins. You know, we we cover the units in a rotating roster, and that was my week. Um, they brought in, I can't remember how they got to Hopkins, but they were emergently brought into Johns Hopkins, a young basketball player. Yeah, I think he must have been in his early 20s. Um, and he had uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, a rare and dangerous clotting disorder that is almost uniformly fatal if it's not treated quickly. So he came to us. I diagnosed him with TTP and we treated him. And I think in a sense, it was one of those occasions where quite unequivocally we saved his life. But because it's a clotting disorder, he, he had a stroke. Uh, so you can imagine this let's say 23, 24 year old 
you know, athlete uh, with a hemiparesis and we looked after him in the stroke unit and then he went to the rehab unit. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to see how he was doing. So I walked over, you know, after he'd been transferred from my unit to the rehab unit and I went in to see him. It must have been, I don't know, early evening, you know, everything was quiet. And, you know, he was extremely nice, hello doc. But he was there with his, you know, paralyzed, I can't remember which side it was. And he said to me, you know, I'm not, you know, something along the lines, I'm not trying to be ungrateful, but you know, why can't I be doing something? I just lie here. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an athlete. And why couldn't I be doing something while I'm here in the room? And I remember thinking, you know, this is just unacceptable. He, he's going to spend the whole evening alone in the room. Uh, he's going to spend substantial portions of his time during the day alone in his room, not doing anything with his arm and hand. And, and I just felt kind of inadequate. I felt like this just couldn't be that there weren't technologies that we could begin to develop and adapt to let people do more um, after injury, especially in, you know, we can talk about this, these periods early when there's more plasticity. And so that galvanized me in a way. I just thought, you know, I'm just not going to do this. We've got to find a way to, to provide technology-inflected behavioral experiences that can be used to greatly increase the dose and intensity of behavioral training after injury, especially in people that motivated. And, you know, I think in a nutshell, I mean, anyone who isn't in medicine listening to this will go, well, yeah, I mean, we didn't know people just tend to lie around in bed most of the time. And so one could tell a story about, well, how did it ever get there? Why didn't somebody else have that moment? Maybe they did and they just gave up, uh, you know, when they were asked to do something like that. The, the question, your whole podcast could be, well, why haven't we done that? And why are we still struggling to do it? Thank you for starting with this story because I think it actually centralizes some, uh, I, we, we could go down a list. We could, you know, I, I think there's not a lot of people out there. Um, I'll, I'll say there's no one out there just, just for you because I don't want to spend all time arguing. But there's no one out there that knows as much about stroke recovery as you do. Let's start with educating people on what we know. Um, so you've got a gentleman lying in front of you who says, "I want to be, I want to be moving nonstop. Why can't I be doing my rehab right now? What more could I be doing?" First question, I suppose, is he right? Is there a cap on what he could be doing? Is there a point where we could be pushing him that would be causing harm? Because these are all things that frame people's reasons for saying no, I have observed to new technology is, oh, well, what if their tone gets worse? Or what happens if they fall over while you're not watching? So let's start to cross out some of these dumb reasons for saying no. Sure. I mean, you know, okay, yeah. I mean, it's good exercise to try and be structured in, in answering this. It is complex. So first of all, what we're talking about here, and, and you know, what I tend to do research on is is the, the motor deficits after stroke, which are the most common. So just to be clear, stroke comes in two principal flavors. When an artery is clogged and when an artery bursts, um, they lead to death of tissue, wherever that blood vessel was supplying. The problem with the motor system is that it's quite well represented. And so it's commonly damaged. You usually affect one side, which is contralateral to where your stroke was. So if you have a right hemispheric stroke, you'll have a left-sided motor deficit and vice versa. We feel that the reason why you do have this hemiparetic phenotype, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is because primarily in humans, you interrupt this very important descending pathway down from the brain to the spinal cord called the corticospinal tract. Um, this is an incredible tract with that the brain allows the brain to control various circuits along its path down into the spinal cord. And it leads to enormous amounts of dexterity and control. But the problem is that in humans, it looks as though we put all our eggs in that one cable. And so if you lose it, you're more devastated than even our closest primate cousins, for example, chimpanzees. And then the whole question comes down to how much of, you, of it have you lost how much can you do through behavioral intervention to upregulate what you have residually? We feel that you have more chance of bringing back what you have left and upregulating the residual corticospinal tract early because there's this 
special window of enhanced plasticity, enhanced responsiveness to training that in humans we think lasts about one and a half months, maybe three. Um, so that gentleman is not able to move his arm and his hand because he's damaged this cortical spinal tract. And the question is, is could we be doing more to bring the remaining component back online with the assumption that he has got some remaining descending pathways? In most cases, patients do. Now, the concern has been that patients may be too tired to do the intense training that is required. And then there's been this belief going back into the 90s that intense training can actually expand infarct size, cause more damage. Um, that's a whole can of worms. Needless to say, uh, the data don't really support that with the exception of very large strokes, perhaps. Uh, it, the point is somewhat moot because we feel like that's only really an issue within the first five days of stroke, which is your average length of stay in a stroke unit. Um, so when you take into account even qualifications in those original studies, you take into account the window where you have to worry, you have to just look at that subset of strokes that are really large. Once you take all those things aside, then most patients simply should be given higher doses and intensities of training right away. And as you know, we've done studies in the mouse where we do it within a day, right? And they get a massive benefit. Whereas if you wait in a mouse even one week, you don't get the same benefit. So there's a clicking clock and right. it's not that different from thrombolysis and we need to be doing something. And finally, if it was a total lesion, there are ways now to establish what the remaining integrity is to give some sense of whether it's worth throwing the kitchen sink at someone. So for all those reasons, the default should be see if they have residual movement, find a way to challenge them on their residual movement and start right away. And the science does not support the lack of intervention. I think it's to do with culture, economics, and entrenched opinions that have long since become uh, recalcitrant to scientific evidence. Yeah, totally agree. One of the things that I often say when all of these reasons for not adopting new new things come on and you you hear the same things over and over again, um, and, and really I, I tend to just swipe them all out the way and say, I think what you're telling me is it's hard to change your behavior <laughs> um, yeah. as a clinician, which is also, you know, very challenging to your patients because our whole job should be behavioral change, both in our patients and, and in our own practice. We have now, as you know, developed some hand devices and games that can actually be placed in the room, like for, like for that young man, where you know you have your arm you know in some sort of soft cladding so that you're well positioned and then you can take the residual dexterity and strength you have for example in the hand and start to play you know with systems for sensors that can detect micro movements you know small isometric forces which still require dexterity and you can place it in their room and we know we we're, we've just written an IRB called the nighttime study where we're going to be doing just that so it's perfectly doable. You can have a resident or a family member or a nurse can help set it up fairly quickly and you're on your way. And I can't for the life of me think of what the risk is. Of course, you don't want the patient getting out of bed on their own and the risks of falls, absolutely. But when it comes to cognitive and upper limb tasks, you can actually have them secure in bed and find ways that they can continue to train at no risk to themselves and considerably increase the dose that they get during their inpatient stay. Um, but you know, it, you have to develop the technology. It has to be purchased. Yeah. You have to train on it. it. You know, you have to be able to quantify it. You have to be able to adjust it. Yeah. That's all true, but IVs get adjusted, beds get adjusted, people get taken out of bed to chair and out of bed to bathroom. There are all sorts of little maneuvers and moments that occur between the patient and another human being. And that could certainly be done without a great deal of increased time with technologies. Absolutely. And so then we move along to another excuse that I, I hear a lot. Um, and this one is usually said in, in hushed tones, which is... What is the role of a therapist? What is the role of a physical therapist, occupational therapist, SLP, allied health, if these machines are taking over? So if he's, if your patient is doing this when they're away and, and they're not around, what, what is he doing with the therapist? What, what becomes important for the therapist to do with the patient when they're not playing 
these restorative video games? I really struggle with these kind of questions because they're so baffling to me. Um, <laughs> no, really, it would be like saying, you know, what's the point of a cardiologist now that we have stethoscopes and EKGs and echocardiograms, you know, yeah. because the patient can go down to get an echo or they can get an EKG when the cardiologist is not there. So what's the point of the cardiologist? I mean, it's it's just so bizarre. Mm-hmm that i that I, I i i just can't understand it i mean yeah, do you think very, part of do you think part what? of the problem is that we're not teaching therapists how to use these these tools like we teach cardiology you know this is not taught in university how to interact with motion motion capture technology and how to set up an xbox or uh you know a a, a gaming system that could be used for rehabilitation do you think that's part of the issue? Just a complete lack of expertise. So then it's not viewed as a tool of the trade. Yeah, I mean, there are two ways into the answer. One is exactly that one. Um, and we can get to that in a minute. But I just want to say something I think, which is, we're very interested in the biomedical complex and cure. We're less interested in care. Mm -hmm. And we make a stark distinction between care and cure. And the allied health sciences, you know, they're mainly women. They're considered an afterthought after the surgery, after the medical procedure. You know, now we just have to, it's the equivalent of sewing them up afterwards. You know, you, you give that to a lesser person and the surgeon walks out. The idea that a human being specialized in the holistic behavior of a patient and a way to train them to behave again in a safe way in their environment and the critical need to know how to do that being downplayed is astonishing. So by irony and paradox, that critical skill, which is really complex, has been circumscribed, simplified, um, and then locked into place technologically and scientifically. It's, it's almost as though one of the most important things that could ever happen between a patient and a clinician has been turned into a lesser version of itself that is so insecure that it doesn't want to realize that it's the most important profession in the hospital which I believe it is. So in other words, what we need is to reinvent what it is to be someone who can touch and hold and train and integrate a patient back into their lives across all three levels of, you know, the international classification of functioning, you know, the levels of impairment, activity and participation. So I think what's happened is that there's been, it's like in the movies where somebody has latent superpowers, they're the chosen one and they don't realize that they are. Right. And I would like therapists to realize that given with what science is telling us and with what technology can offer and the critical importance of behavioral intervention and human to human contact, regardless of technology, that actually therapists are the chosen ones. And they're the ones who could make huge differences to outcomes that go far beyond what pharmacology is doing. So I think what we need to do is to sort of reinstill their sense that they're fundamental to the trajectory of a patient and make them understand that they're just going to be given better and better tools, just like all the other medical specialties are given better and better tools without even remotely making you expendable. In fact, I believe profoundly that you will never take humans out of the loop if you want true creative behavioral interventions that will lead to true recovery. I really do. Mm -hmm. And are there moments where the, the patients can do things on their own? Yeah. Right? But that's true of all the other medical professionals. You know, when they take their antihypertensive or statin at home, are you there when they pop the pill as a doctor? No, right? Are you there when they take their own blood pressure? No. So in other words, I think our job, David, to be quite honest, is to make people who are in the professions to holistically intervene at the level of behavior, to make them understand that they are the vanguard of interventions for neurological disease. I really do. It, it, it's just that perception is out of insecurity and it's just wrong. I agree. I really like the way that you framed the way many of our allied health professionals, their role is minimized. Their role in, yeah. in recovery is minimized. I, I think it's further minimized that, you know, one of the most frustrating things that I hear in neurophysio is, oh, it, it's more of an art than a science. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to bang my head against the wall, but I hear it so often. I'm like, no, <laughs> don't, again, don't further minimize the skill of an exceptional neurophysio by saying what they're doing is an art. What they're doing is a very well calibrated science. And that is why their patients are getting better because 
they're following the research. Um, I mean, just to just to drill down on this again, another anecdote. You know, I'm, you know, I, I have a therapist who joined mm-hmm. our research group, uh, Sandra. Um, I, I know you met her, and she um, decided to do a PhD with me. Okay, um, and she's an exceptional therapist, and she is doing a PhD in motor control and in rehabilitation. And what's incredibly interesting is to see this young clinician and scientist have to grapple with this very complex interface between neuroscience and technology beginning to make people feel that impairment reduction is possible at the behavioral level, and then mesh that with all the things that one has learned tacitly and explicitly in school to help patients at the level of activity and participation at function level to get home as soon as possible. So there's a genuine tension in the minds of this next gen between taking the new and combining it with the wisdom of the ages and finding a new synthesis, right? And mm-hmm. it's and, and the upper limb is an incredible sort of, I shouldn't say battlefield, but it's sort of a ground upon which to have this dialogue between you know, technology-aided impairment reduction and hands-on participation and activity training. I believe out of that meshing, out of that dialogue within the minds of the next generation of therapists, you're going to get a new cadre of therapists who are going to change the nature of the experience for patients because impairment is now really going to be the goal. And then, of course, what's going to have to happen is it's going to have to be combined with new economic structures to make that realistic, right? Because you can't just discharge the patient after four or five days. And, you know, we're doing studies at Johns Hopkins with, you know, we call it fourth hour. You do your regular therapy and then you go in and do impairment-based stuff for the upper limb. Um, So I think it's a very exciting moment to completely rejuvenate those fields. And then, you know, the final point is that I think other clinicians, MDs, you know, and, and should also be doing behavioral interventions. Right. In other words, I think we just have to have the whole medical profession understand that behavioral intervention is important. And as soon as you do that, you're going to expand the number of people who do it and completely change the perception and the content of what therapists do. I mean, you could have a kind of revolution here, but the only way we're going to have an exciting revolution, and this is a critical point, is to stop thinking that this is about technology versus human clinicians. That is just a utterly false way to frame it in my view and I, I hate to go on about it but we just no. mustn't start we mustn't start the whole thing with that assumption because it's just wrong agreed entirely and because this is what we want right we we in our minds we want the here's the complex patient and here's the single silver bullet that solves the complex patient as opposed to rolling up our sleeves and doing everything that is required in combination to make them better um you know and i I think that on a lot of fronts we're we're seeing really interesting things emerging you know i I even think in the field of as we start to see psychedelics as a field emerge Mm -hmm. i find it so fascinating and instructive because finally the whole field of psychiatry is having to face the fact that we're saying here is a medication that must be paired with a behavior in a behavioral intervention in order to be effective. Otherwise, it's you're just giving someone a psychotropic medicine and and leaving them to go on their way. I mean, psychedelics are fascinating, right? I mean, I'm being swept up in it too. Um, I find it fascinating. I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. The psychedelics are very interesting. They're sort of like behavior in a form of a pill. They're sort of this strange hybrid where many people who are very into pharmacology and now into psychedelics because they feel like they're getting their behavioral cake and eat it in the form of a kind of experience that is pharmacological but as you say it's almost certainly necessary to then you know either combine that or complement with a behavioral intervention and you know one of the great mysteries of psychedelics is that you can get these lasting effects with one-time doses right mm-hmm. so there's it's a very interesting space because like a NECA cube psychedelics oscillate between being traditional pharma and being something far more that feels behavioral. And I think this is going to play out very interestingly. 
you know, I wanted to just say, you know, just again on this whole issue, give another anecdote. You know, um, when I was running the units again, there was a young police officer from, you know, one of the Emirates, and he'd had a massive hemorrhage and was essentially vegetative as far as the people who had transferred him to us were concerned. And he had an amazing family, right? He had a, a wife, a small daughter, two brothers, mother, father, they were all there at the bedside. And at the time that I came on service, um, there had been plans were afoot to have him transferred back, either in the US to some sort of step down, you know, you know, subacute facility, um, or back to the, you know, one of the Emirates. Um, and, you know, I was noticing when I would walk in that there were moments of what seemed to be little lucid phases where he seemed to fixate on his wife. You know, he seemed to respond above chance to certain questions and instructions. And so I said to the team, I said, you know, we might as well just keep him here. He's got this amazing family looking after him. He's getting all the stimulation. We can get more therapy for him. And, you know, it's going to be paid for, right? There's a wealthy source of funding. Not that that was obviously not why I was doing it. And I said, it will be good for everyone here to get a sense of the natural history of TBI in a young person, because of course you don't know what the natural history is because you, he's gone within a week or two and you have no idea what his trajectory would be. So I said, let's keep him. And of course there was consternation. I had to go to the chairman. I had to make a case. And of course, you know, I was given permission and um, we kept him for months. It was definitely two or three months later, you know, when I was long off service, I was walking through one of the, you know, on the first floor of the hospital. And this young man came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And I went, well, who's this? Right. It was him with his family, walking around, talking. Right now, I can assure you, everyone thought that he was going to remain vegetative and he should be transferred out. But what the lesson there was, he was young, he was under 45, which we know is a kind of a critical age for TBI. I had looked at his scans and could see that he had brain left. We did micro examinations of him neurologically and saw every day that there was a delta. He was getting an enormous amount of care from his family and from the therapist, we upped it. And it was a remarkable trajectory. Now, the, again, no one believes in that because no one sees it anymore. And then, of course, you go to a subacute facility where you get less and less. And then, of course, as the New England Journal called it, you get rehabbed to death. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in other words, we need the entire philosophy of the care of nervous system injury and what incremental high-intensity, high-dose training does over days, weeks, and months, right? And have better ways to measure, have many different types of team member. But what I'm talking about here, it just sounds like heresy, right? In other words, this whole mindset is yeah. just not what the, the, and you know, just to say that it doesn't sound like complete idealism. One of the ideas is, is that maybe with technology, and continuing tracking across the continuum of care, even when you are discharged from an acute stroke unit, you could to some degree reproduce this several months stay in an acute unit like that, which may not scale, which may not be feasible. But at least you can say that there's that potential and surely we can find ways using technology and science and people to reproduce that in a scalable way. Yeah. Right? But that, that's what we need. You see, David, that, that, it's just it's just the whole thing has to change. Agreed. Scalable way is a, is a good hook because, you know, you we as we sort of discussed earlier, you and I both have had experience in high performance and your approach certainly does not sound like heresy when we're dealing with, you know, my time working for an NBA team or for Red Bull and their high performance division. Right or for you know, any of the high performance athletes I've worked with, it's not heresy to say round the clock, there is gonna be somebody literally feeding you, you know, the nutrition that you need that is optimized for you and giving you hydration and doing your rehab. And you're gonna have a doctor who's checking in on your moment to moment change of status. Really, not only do we know that that approach works and that approach is highly effective at restoring someone to a previous level of, of ability, or in fact, even enhancing their ability after the incident. We, we know that it's possible, 
we just don't make it financially feasible for everybody uh, for, for obvious reasons. So then the next question is, how can we create a care team like that through technology that can be scaled to the masses? Rather than denying that it works, because yes, I totally agree that there wants to be a lot of denial that this is not even a valid approach. It's just, it's a waste of resources, but it's not a waste of resources. We know that it works. So then, then the next question is, how do we scale it? There are many ways. First of all, you know, for me, you know, I've always thought to myself, there are 24 hours on the, in the hospital. And then regular rehab involves an hour of OT, an hour of PT, an hour of speech. And I've always thought to myself, well, what about the other 21 hours? Surely there's a way to add to the behavioral experience within those 24 hours. Now, we have just completed um, a pilot study in the stroke unit at Hopkins, where we created an immersive room, which you know very well mm -hmm. all about, and patients were led to do after they'd had their other things that they needed to have done clinically to that room to do, you know, up, up to an hour, hour and a half of extra upper limb therapy. We've now finished 20 patients. They can do it. It's feasible. You can bring them and you can steadily titrate up the amount of time they can do it. There are systems approaches. Mona Behuth, she's a stroke neurologist at Hopkins, has done a remarkable job. Um, trying to do a kind of systems analysis so that the flow during the day is such that you can actually use these extra hours in the day. Okay, so one answer to your question is, can you fit it into the day in a structural way? And the answer is yes. The question then is, is what is it that you install? In, in and, you know, we can talk about the type of approaches. We've already talked about the nighttime study, then we can talk about the rooms. And then you have to think about well, what's the extra training required and how do you pay for it? Yeah. Right. These are problems that have been solved before in other areas of medicine. I mean, right. We have dialysis units, we have heart transplants, we have chemotherapy, we have MRI scanners, right? As technology has come along, we have found ways to use it and we found ways to pay for it. There's no difference here in my view, except that behavioral interventions take longer and that's what, puts people off. They don't want people to be athletes or students with the kind of time that athletes and students are given. They want something quicker, faster. But that's what we're going to have to get over. I think your point is a critical point. I think it's the take home point of the whole podcast really is treat each patient as an athlete that needs that type of attention to detail and that amount of training. That's what one should think about. The nervous system is going to have to be treated with the respect that a professional athlete accords their body when they're training. That's what it's going to have to be. And we're simply going to have to find a way to, to pay for the technology and the time and the staff to do it. And does it scale? Well, yeah, it scales just the way that MRI scanners are everywhere. They scale. CAT scanners scale. Chest x-rays scale. There are little operating rooms everywhere. They scale, right? So emergency rooms scale, right? So. I don't quite see how we can't do the same thing. School scale, kindergarten scale, gym scale. I just don't think that we have the mindset for it. I think the only thing that has to expand is people's imagination in the chemical, medical industrial complex. We just have to take a feather out of the cap of, of, of what you said, the, the professional athletes. I, I mean, in terms of getting people the standard of care that they need, I mean, I I hope that this is not my career legacy, but I will say categorically up until now, I think the most impact that I've had on quality of care has been from sitting back and working with a team on how can we intelligently structure and string together a set of CPT codes, a set of billing codes in a novel way that allows therapists to have the amount of time that they need to provide the adequate standard of care that we're demanding uh, while still being reimbursed at a, a significant level. So, so I do think that there is a place for, you know, because what I'm learning about all health systems is oftentimes that isn't done. They're like, look, we've got two or three billing codes that we know the insurers are going to cover and we're just going to keep dropping these billing codes and create a factory and we're not going to change any of what we do. We're just going to do it this way. For change to occur, first, you need to 
use the tools you have, which we know that we have billing codes that can get that can be reshuffled and 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 rechanged. I think the other challenge is that we need technologies that actually have a good faith basis of working, right? Um, and you know, you and I recently published um, a piece about the prospects of new technologies to bring about a needed revolution in in neuro rehab. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Like where, where are the holes here and, and what are we doing wrong? What are we doing right um, to get new, good new technologies in front of therapists? Yeah, I mean, just to go back to this notion of therapists, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because on the one hand, if one doesn't expand the definition of what a behavioral interventionalist is and maybe reinvent the profession and bring maybe new people into it, the danger is with what you're saying is if you still keep putting everything that comes along under the one hour, one hour, one hour umbrella, yeah, you know, um, bill for the therapist, everything has to be squeezed into this pre-existing model. And so what happens, right, is any new technology, because it's forced to be used within that framework of an hour of OT, an hour of PT, which as you know, ends up being far less in terms of total mm -hmm. minutes, the technologies can't spread their wings and, and because they, they need hours and hours and hours and hours of time to be used properly. So then you're in this extremely unfortunate catch-22 situation, which is if you try and piggyback on existing timeframes and codes, then very few technologies can possibly breathe within that constricted time frame. They fail, but they fail because they were never meant to last, uh, to be used for such a short period of time. There's this horrible situation where the trials are done, as you well know, with far more therapy. So let's take robotics, which I'm not a huge fan of, but you know the robotic trials, some of them at least, really try to increase the intensity of dose of high limb training and sure, saw some signal, it wasn't super impressive, but there was some signal. But then the companies were fully aware that when they then sold this technology commercially, that the therapists would never use the technology under the trial conditions. They would simply use them for five, 10, 15 minutes as a dessert during their regular session. <clears throat> Another more up-to-date example, you know, it's dear to two of, of our hearts, is, is, is vagal nerve stimulation. Vagal nerve stimulation is running into trouble now right because the trial was not super impressive it was like robotics not a huge effect size patients had to have something rather large and unwieldy implanted and then they had to have it combined with much more therapy than is usually given the company and like the other companies realized that they could then sell the device outside the context of the increased therapy that was given during the trial which is absolutely true the you know you can the fda will allow you to use the, the, the technology outside the context of the behavioral intervention used in the trial. And again, we're gonna almost certainly see even less impressive results under those conditions. And the therapist will consider yet another technology has bitten the dust. Okay, so in other words, the only danger with what you're saying, which is to sort of try and piggyback and exploit current codes and ways to pay therapists is that because the timeframes are so completely off, everything that comes through that is promising will be seen as a failure. So my guess is that we're gonna to have to find a way, either you have a new generation of therapists who do spend three, four, five hours with one patient just for the upper limb, or you find a way to combine their time with you know, another set of human beings that may not have to be fully fledged therapists, plus technology. So you, know, you could have a series of rooms with immersive gaming in them, and you could have you know, technicians and therapists, and you could basically rotate and see how things are going. But my guess is if, if technology is going to have the effect on impairment that you and I think it can be, then you're going to have to break free of current ways to pay therapists the amount of time that they get allotted to them. I, so I don't know how one does that. Either they no, I, get changed yeah. or you have to have a new set of humans that complement them that can increase the amount of time spent with the patients. You see what right. I'm saying? I, that's my big concern. I totally agree. You know, and, and when we think about utilizing new billing codes and things like that, there is potential for that with the remote therapeutic monitoring billing codes uh, that are available because you can have a rehab technician or a PTA monitoring 
progress of someone away interacting with the technology and spending hours on the technology um, and being having the PTA tweak difficulty and uh, repetitions and so on and so forth on the back end, this becomes possible. There are still a lot of issues that need to be solved on the financial side of things. You know, there, there are issues related to just the simple capital expenses of these systems and having hospitals able to afford them up front because the billing codes don't pay for that. There are, as you mentioned, training costs and so on and so forth. But I agree entirely with what you said that we need to change, we need to turn the whole system on its head and stop expecting big effect sizes to come out of small interventional windows because that's just not how the nervous system works and that's not how uh, behavioral interventions. I mean, work. as you know, I mean, you know, with all the excitement that there currently is about epidural stimulation of the spinal cord and spinal cord injury, you know, people forget that when the, the stimulator is implanted, the patients spend months and months, months on yeah. doing two to three hour sessions almost every day of the week for months on a treadmill, right? I mean, massive amounts of, you know, athlete level degrees of practice. Yeah. Right. So my feeling is, is we're going to have to just expand, you know, the clinical coaching class, right? Yeah. The, the number of professions that come under the umbrella of training, right? Yeah. So that you can do that kind of training. And, and I just, and I just don't know whether one would unwittingly fall into a local minima by using existing codes, which are still very much within those constrained time intervals, as you said, and we get caught. In other words, we, we, we got as much of the slack out of the system as we could. We call that optimal. Um, and I've seen that. I, we've actually, I remember speaking to a, a hospital in Germany where they felt that if they could just squeeze the sponge to its ultimate dryness and just get as much of the slack out of the system, they were better than everybody else. Rather than saying, well, no, you're not gonna be able to climb up an even taller tree to get to the moon. You have to do something different. Right? Yeah. And uh, so that's my concern. I mean, I'm, by all means, let's see whether we can revamp current therapy reimbursement and using codes, but we need to sort of have a way to bring a whole new philosophy and type of training and codes well, that yeah. allow somebody to do two to three hours a day for months, right? I mean, that's, yes. you see, and I, and I just don't know whether trials with technology showing evidence for that are going to be enough of an impetus to, to change, break open the system uh, in the way that you and I want it. And for all insurers who say no to this, we're going to say, your children get to go to the special school where you only get 45 minutes of instruction every day and that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's all you yeah. need because, yeah. because that's what you're telling us we need to reshape a nervous system, 45 minutes a day, um, three days a week for- Yeah, for I mean, I think your, your point made, uh, you made earlier with, is that you, know, you and I have two very, very hard jobs, right? One is to combine the science and the technology with change in practice like we've been discussing. And then we have to be the extraordinarily good psychotherapists to the medical profession, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and teach them that behavioral interventions um, have incredible lasting benefits in any medical condition, right? I mean, the nervous system demands it, but I think that that's true. You know, I said this to you before, right? You know, everyone was extremely proud of the vaccines for COVID, but no one really said, well, how come we haven't cured the hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and sedentary living that led to all those deaths in Northern Italy and Bergamo and then around the world? There are still hundreds of people dying um, every day of COVID because of their comorbidities. Why haven't those been solved as fast as a vaccine was developed? I never seen an article anywhere saying, why haven't we solved hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and sedentary living in two years? Well, we've got a vaccine in two years. What's the problem, right? And, I, and no one seems to ask that question. I mean, maybe someone's asked you that question. When you say, well, because the answer is those conditions are behavioral intervention requiring conditions. They're not gonna have something made by Moderna, that's going to just be popped into their mouth or injected into them. They go, oh, okay, it's mm -hmm. different. 
the question doesn't even get asked. I mean, have you ever been asked? Why haven't we solved the problems as fast as getting the vaccine itself? No, the only way I've been asked that question is is in a totally different kettle of fish, which is in the context of long COVID. Similarly, does not have a reductionist solution. It requires better understanding of multiple aspects of complex chronic illness. But yeah, I, I mean, I think yes, exactly. ultimately, ultimately yeah. fundamentally the same point, which is the hard things require both behavioral health as well as pharmacological intervention and rehab comprises a large part of that. And we're constantly, you know, again, to your earlier point, we're constantly trying to disrespect rehab. We're constantly trying to say one day there will be a pill that replaces you. But when you actually understand the complexity of what you're trying to do, that's complete nonsense. In fact, I'd say anybody who says that there is one pill that is going to solve this problem fundamentally doesn't understand the problem they're trying to solve. I mean, what I, the way I teach students, I say, look, if I were to tell you take this pill and tomorrow you'll be a concert level violinist, anyone who knows a little bit of neuroscience will know that that's impossible. So they know, oh yeah, I can't, even like in the matrix, you know, you're a helicopter pilot, you're a pianist. Like they understand it makes no sense in a healthy nervous system to be able to do that. But as soon as you get to a damaged one, that kind of magical thinking suddenly seems to be allowed, right? They, they cross over into thinking there's something feasible there. It's very yeah. odd. It is right. odd. So, fact um, that, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it strange. Should be harder, not easier. <laughs> it should be harder, not easier. Right. It, it's yeah. it's extremely odd. And there are, you know, we don't have to go into it, sort of theories about levels that you can sort of explain why that happens. Right. Um, what I would say, you know, just for us to sort of be practical is my dream is, is you'll have multiple behavioral professions. Um, there was a remarkable article in The New Yorker during COVID about these teams on motorbikes in Costa Rica checking in on patients around the country, right? Almost like a commando team, right? And they were a mixture of IT, nursing, and therapy, right? It was like almost like a new profession, Um, which I find very exciting. You know, when David Graeber wrote his book, Bullshit Jobs, people sitting in cubicles doing the equivalent of digging a hole and filling it up again, that you could really train people in this mixture. They'd be like EMTs plus and you'd have this incredible, you know, commando unit, SWAT team for looking after people in place. Um, and the dream would be that you'd have hospitals, you'd have high streets with pop-up immersive rooms that you'd go into, just like you go into a supermarket, a hairdresser or an optician. And then you'd have home visits. Then you create this network of ongoing technology-inflected behavioral intervention at all those locations along the continuum of care and it would be lifelong. We just finished a trial in Portugal of 30 Parkinson's patients who came in three times a week for an hour of gameplay for 12 weeks and they enjoyed it. Now there are challenges. Do they have to have a van? How do they get there? What happens to them afterwards? But it's definitely doable. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly inspiring. The only way we're gonna do this is to be, you know, generate the evidence and then somehow you know, persuade the entrenched clinicians who should be our allies, right, David? I mean, they shouldn't be fighting us. No. And then then we have to make the economic case, the political case. It's very, very difficult, but there's no alternative. And the weapon that we have is better science and better technology. You know, it's going to allow us to have a better chance to win this battle. Wouldn't you agree that there's a moment now where we can do this because we have better weapons? Yes, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, and even, as you say, the, the political challenges, you know, the, the entrenched ableism of if you're an older adult who's had a stroke, like what, what is the point of even, you know, getting them back to a level of function if they're not contributing to the economy and they're not, you know, uh, doing all of these things? I, I couldn't believe it, but, you know, there's a, this Senate political race in Pennsylvania, and I received four calls asking for comment about whether or not someone who's had a stroke, who is using an assistive technology to interpret questions after his stroke, could be fit to be a senator. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, and, you know, we're, we're on, you know, you and I, I've been interviewed four times now about Fetterman. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating that there were two lines of questioning. One was, is he cognitively intact? 
despite his difficulty expressing language, one. And then the other one was, is it okay if you're cognitively intact to require some kind of aid? And what I pointed out to them is I said, you need to keep those completely orthogonal to each other, mm -hmm. right? Is he cognitively intact? And I said, yes. Language and thinking are not the same. Put that aside. Now, are you really saying that he shouldn't be able to use some sort of prompting device? In other words, a deaf senator could never use hearing aids. A senator in a wheelchair could never use a ramp, right? Let's just get rid of all those things, yep. right? Any senator with a pacemaker in, remove it, yep. right? Is that the where you want to go? It, yep. It's outrageous, yes. right? And um, This is a challenge. Uh, right yeah. because this this is how people think about disability and part of the fight always has to be battling this entrenched ableism of how much money is worth spending to make someone well again or i mean there are three versions of this right i think it's yeah. important for listeners you know one is to use technology to try and fix people so they can go back into the normal world okay so that's the ultimate can you reduce impairment sufficiently to get people to go back into the normal world. They're sufficiently fixed. Then you have technology that can allow you to go back into the normal world, but the technology is not fixing you, it's assisting you, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, like the work we're doing on spinal cord stimulation and chronic stroke, it may well be just like in DBS for Parkinson's disease that you need a permanent- Permanent. Okay. But, but, so in other words, you're not fixed, but you're aided. And, but in both cases, they allow you to go back into the normal world. And then there's the third, which is, should we be using technologies to create new worlds, right? Who are neither fixed nor assisted, but the quality of their life in this new world, avatar-like, suits them. Should we be using technology to create worlds that increase the quality of life? In other words, it's an Umwelt, using the German term, designed for your disability. You know, I just saw a movie, I don't know if you saw it, which I recommend everyone see, called The Sound of Metal. I don't know if you saw that uh, movie. It's an amazing movie about a drummer who loses his hearing. Mm. Of, and, uh, and this young man, this, you know, alternative musician, tattooed and wild, is suddenly thrown into the world of disability and having to cope with being deaf. And there's a very interesting treatment of going to a community to learn to be deaf or whether to try and get cochlear implants. And, you know, I, I, that's a can of worms. I have no interest in going into it. But I think this film very beautifully touches all the themes that we've been talking about today, right? Is what rights do you have to live in the new world that your disability has given you? And can technology be used simply to allow you to enjoy your disability and spend, and, you know, every now and then you move into the, the real world and you go back to your new world? Or do we only want to have technologies that fix you or assist you so that you can go back into the real world? And if you can't, like in the case of the Senator, banish them. You can't be in the Senate. You, you don't belong here. I think obviously, I know that you know this, but the terms fixed and normal are, are not what, you know, I, I know that we, we both believe in the third world, the, the fact that we create new, the third idea, which is we create new worlds for everybody. By creating new worlds, the sort of able-bodied world, or should we say temporarily able-bodied world, doesn't seem to capture, even though every time we do it, it you know, it, it's happened over and over again. Every time you create a new world, it becomes for everybody. And it, it enhances the world of the able-bodied folks and the... Uh, Absolutely. The I mean, I, I, I agree. There's and such yet, a massive failure of teaching yeah. that lesson over and over yeah. again which is yeah. this I mean, a failure of imagination <laughs> failure of failure of imagination failure of concepts failure of vocabulary uh failure to respect right yeah. i mean it's all true but i do think it's important to know that to the degree that technology and science are allowing it we can increase the probability of spending some more time able-bodied and mm -hmm. i think that yes. that what that option without any ideological baggage attached to it should be made available made available uh, um, and and i think that it's exciting that the same technologies and concepts can be used to increase the probability of remove moving back to a more able-bodied state but also to greatly enhance the quality of life in the disabled state 100%. Right? in other words and and i 
it's just not what's taught in yes. the, in medical schools and elsewhere. It, it's it's and I, I would it's impoverished. It's impoverished, wouldn't you say? It's just an impoverished, Definitely. reductionist education that and doesn't see the enormous scope for a multiplicity of solutions. And an anecdote of my own is I have two two individuals with spinal cord injury that I, I, I work with and see on a, a regular basis that are both high C, meaning, you know, for those listening, meaning that they don't have any voluntary movement of their arms or their legs. One would interact with any technology that will bring back function, would be willing to do any sort of surgery that would allow them to re-enter uh, the able-bodied world and the other is full of disability pride is is constantly communicating to me that a series of worlds opened up to them because of their spinal cord injury and they love who they are as as a result of their injury and they would not choose to participate in interventions that had a chance of bringing back upper and lower extremity function and again to your point both are valid, you know, both, both viewpoints are valid, both viewpoints are deeply personal, but who are we to not offer, you know, why, why would we not be fighting every step of the way to offer these opportunities to individuals who, who want these technologies to... Uh, yeah, uh, to I mean, and, 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 and it's just, you know, I, I was just, you know, co-hosting a very exciting meeting on trying to do something about cerebellar ataxia, you know, my mother has cerebellar ataxia, right? She has a slowly progressive cerebellar ataxia. And, you know, she has to be extremely careful on, on surfaces. And now if I were to say to my mother, look, we can either go to cities that are flatter, go to places where you can walk <laughs> and feel safe, or you have to agree to have an implantable cerebellar unit put in you at the age of 84 to see if it can help you revert your reverse your cerebral tax. I mean, it, it would be completely ridiculous to say if you're not willing to go through the technological hoop, jump through the technological hoops required to have it reversed with some implantable device versus trying to create spaces where you, even with your cerebral ataxia, can feel the joy of movement and participation. I mean, it would be insanity, right? And it would be, I would be just as proud. And I said, by the way, just, at this meeting that the two things that should be tried and i've been interested to hear what you say are yes by all means let's try and make a prosthetic cerebellum let's let, let's have cerebellar ataxia have its dbs moment but on the other end of the spectrum let's create cerebellar care centers glorious places where you can go and greatly enjoy your ataxia right you know an arcade for neurological disease and technology could be used for both those ends, a kind of return to being able-bodied and a joyous immersion despite or because of your ataxia, right? And those, and I remember when I said it, those are the two things that should be done, right? Mm -hmm. People thought there was something contradictory in that. Yeah. Some people did. Do you see? It's, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. No, I, yeah. it, it, it's some um, John Maynard Keynes said, in the end, we're all dead. Why can't we use science and technology for the care of the self, as Foucault called his book, from the spectrum of the able to the disabled and be equally imaginative in both, expand the professions that way? I mean, that's what I'd like to see, David. I mean, I, I think we just need to revamp everything. But of course, I'm going to agree with you that we can start by being pragmatic with existing codes. And my feeling is that unless you sort of make people see the size of your ambition, people will get bored. Yes, exactly what you just said is is that um, uh, we need to show people a vision of something disruptive. We need to show people a vision of something that really gets them to understand that there is more to what we're planning and more to what we're bringing to the table than sit down and do a hundred repetitions of this movement and you know and we'll get you to a we'll get you to a, a sort of a, a state that isn't really satisfactory for anyone it's not it's not celebrating disability and it's not uh, curing disability it's just and, and, and human beings are like that i mean you know yeah. 
Look at Elon Musk with all his big projects. Oh, come on. You know, people <laughs> respond to that. No, it's but not really not, not no, 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 but what, what I'm saying is that people psychologically respond to big projects. Yes. Um, and what I'm and saying audacious is vision. Yeah. audacious vision. And I'm saying that this project is big. And in this case, it's actually worthy, but it needs audacity. And we need to be able to transmit both the good that it will do and the excitement that it generates. We, we mustn't just sound pragmatic. We have to say that the science and the technology and the will have reached a point where you could do something big and audacious and help a, a huge number of people. And in the end, everyone gets older and less able, right? So, you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to end by feeling optimistic but I think we, we have to have a revolutionary state of mind, you and I. We'll end up being optimistic because that's not how we always end some of our chats. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Um, thank you, David. That was fun. Yeah. No, thank you. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino.